Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Maria. I, this is my second time here, but um, I wanted to introduce Donald because um, I consider him a great, one of my first and great spiritual teachers. So I um, first uh, met Donald at East Bay Meditation Center for a day long. Um, and working with judgments, so this topic of the judgmental mind, and um, I really enjoyed that, and I find um, his techniques, uh, teaching the techniques, and also what uh, I really enjoyed was the sense of humor that he brings into this topic that can be challenging. So um, I, um, I'm really... Um, honored to be introducing him tonight, and uh, um, we also are part of this uh, continuing group of working with the judgmental mind, and it's been a lot of insights working with forgiveness uh, practice and uh, meta practice, uh, loving kindness, and joy, and um, overall, like, I consider him uh, one of my um, <laughs> personal and spiritual gurus, uh, so... Um, I hope you enjoy this talk. I'm sure that he has a lot of really great insights. Um, so thank you for letting me introduce. Um, thanks so much, Maria. This, that was just spontaneously arranged. So thank, <laughs> thank you, Maria, for your willingness to uh, improvise. And maybe just a few other... Uh, few other Thoughts, um, just by, by way of background, um, I do teach uh, probably mostly at, at Spirit Rock, uh, sometimes here, sometimes at East Bay Meditation Center. I teach a lot out of my home, particularly groups, but they're not really uh, public so much. And um, teach uh, the January Metta Retreat, uh, um, teach a lot uh, on uh, judgments. We, we have a seven-day retreat as well. Teach on communication. Have for a long time worked with a Buddhist Peace Fellowship. In fact, I um, remember when I first came to California in the late 80s, uh, James Barras was uh, leaving the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and he had me take his seat on the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And I've actually worked with Buddhist Peace Fellowship, particularly... Uh, very uh, closely for about uh, 20 years, working with the base program and developing different programs, have, have uh, developed a series of uh, training programs for people to connect inner work with their outer engagement in various ways. Also have um, been trained in the uh, Hakomi approach to body-based psychotherapy and have worked a lot with... Um, Tibetan teachers, particularly in Mahamudra and Dzogchen. That's influenced my um, teaching and practice quite a bit. Those are probably some of, that's probably enough. <laughs> uh, some, of my, some of my background. So um, this evening, I wanted to talk about this mysterious topic called not-self or anatta and to explore this theme of uh, not-self and uh, the nature of the self. And what is this teaching? How can we work with it? What does it mean? Why is it important? 
And is, does it necessarily have to be totally confusing? <laughs> That's my theme uh, for this evening. And I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about why it's important, then talk about uh, how it can be very, very confusing, but then mostly talk about how to practice and explore this theme, particularly in two ways, how to explore the nature of the self on the one hand, and then how to uh, open up to experiences beyond what I would call the thick sense of self on the other. And I want to be pretty practical. Not you know, Often a, a talk on not-self can be rather theoretical. We can get into all sorts of um, complicated areas. And I actually want to keep it pretty simple because I think it's actually... Uh, at heart, uh, a very practical and simple topic that we can look at and work with. So first a few words on why I think it's important. Um, We practice insight meditation, and we may wonder from time to time, what are the insights that occur in insight meditation? (laughs) Right? And traditionally, they're taken to be three main areas of insight. These are related to what are called the three characteristics of phenomena. And the first is deeper insight into impermanence. And the second, and probably the one that is most uh, available and important for, for us, I imagine, is insight into the nature of suffering, the roots of suffering, personal, interpersonal, maybe even social, and how to work with our own patterns of suffering, of difficulty, of reactivity. That's the second area. And the third area is anatta, or not-self. This is one of the core areas that we want to look at. Very, very crucial to um, deepening our practice. And so part of my motivation is to, I think, bring out what I regard as the simplicity of this topic. I mean, it can be brought out in complicated ways, but I think at heart it's simple, as I said. And also to encourage our practicing with self and not self on an everyday basis. It's one of the ways that we can really energize and inspire our daily practice. You know, at times, do you find that your daily practice becomes mildly pleasant, way to relax, but not always so insightful? How many at times experience that when you sit? It's very, very common, right? You sit, kind of have a pleasant time, kind of relax, but where is the insight? You know, and sometimes it can be a little bit dull. Pleasant, but dull. <laughs> and in the scheme of things, not bad, but <laughs> you know. But we can also uh, deepen our practice, and uh, we can bring in the factor of what's called inquiry, bringing in interest, uh, some degree of exploration, and we can do this with the theme of self and not self. And yet, it's a very, very uh, confusing topic. 
Sometimes when I'm teaching and someone brings up a question about if there's no self, then who am I? Or, you know, or how do you make sense of rebirth? Or what's going on? Or what is this teaching? Or, you know, whatever. And I, when I hear that, sometimes I sort of cringe a little bit. Um, and it often can get theoretical. So it's, it's a confusing topic. First of all, it's often understood, or uh, the, the, the word anatta is often uh, translated as no self. So sometimes you probably have heard Buddhism has a teaching of no self. How many of you have heard that at various times? Um, I believe, and all the scholars I've talked with agree, that this is a mistranslation. The word anatta is interesting. It's, uh, you know, it's in Pali, and Pali and Sanskrit are Indo-European languages, which basically means that they share a lot of the same structure with English and with other um, European languages. And so the construct anatta, the A that begins the term, is very similar, completely identical to the way we use A in English. And we would say amoral or atypical. It simply means not. You know, and this really is basically saying not self. And it's, uh, so when we think no self, you know, it sure feels like there's a self here. You know, something is going on. And it seems individual, so how do we make sense? It can be very, very confusing. And what we um, find when we look more carefully, we also find that the, the Buddha didn't really teach no self. In fact, there's a very famous passage, which is another possible ground for confusion, famous passage where the Buddha uh, was asked by a wandering yogi named Vachagata. He was asked, maybe I can read this to you. I think I have this right here. He was asked, is there a self? He asked the Buddha that. When this was said, the Buddha was silent. Then, is there no self? A second time, the Buddha was silent. Then, the wanderer of Achagoda rose from his seat and departed. I think this is actually what passes as humor in the discourses. <laughs> then not long after the wanderer of Achagoda had left, Ananda said to the Buddha, why is it that when you were questioned by the wanderer of Achagoda, you did not answer? The Buddha responds, if Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer of Achagoda, is there a self? I had answered, there is a self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists, who believe that there is a permanent self. If I, when I was asked with him, by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are annihilationists. annihilationists and people who think there's no self, nothing is there whatsoever. And so, uh, if I had said there is no self, the wanderer of Achagota, already confused, would have fallen into greater confusion. And so, that's interesting. 
that there's um, a way in which the Buddha is saying that the true understanding of this is, is in neither extreme. So, but that also can be confusing. So what do we make of that? You know, and there's this common sense sense of uh, self that we have. You know, a famous uh, Jewish Buddhist joke goes, if there's no self, whose arthritis is this? Which raises an important point, you know. And, um, you know, I could go on. There are a lot of sources of confusion. The language is very uh, confusing. We often say uh, that the self is equivalent to the ego, right? And we say the self is bad because it's the ego, and the ego is self-centered and egotistical, right? And that can get very confusing because... um, For example, psychologists use the word ego in all sorts of ways, most of them neutral. You know, they use the word ego to point to some unifying function that, you know, kind of brings together different aspects of experience. And uh, people think that Freud used the word ego, which is actually not accurate. Ego was a bad translation from the German the word that Freud used in German is just the word for I. It's ich, or has the same meaning as I. And ego was a bad, very bad translation which has influenced a lot of, a lot of history. It's interesting, right? And so people use ego for self. It gets very, very confusing. So, so I'm, I think I'm asking you to drop all of those grounds for confusion and take the approach which I think we're really encouraged to take, which is the approach of really looking at experience carefully. And rest much more for your understanding of self and not self on what you find in experience rather than on conceptualization. Because I think what historically, what the teaching of not self was about was a a teaching that the prevailing model of self, of this separate, independent, eternal self, was not found in experience. And there was a critique of that, really, you know, of this particular metaphysical idea of self that we would identify, to some extent, with what we now call Hindu tradition. And that was the critique. And so we don't find that really, we don't really find that in experience. So what I find more helpful as a way to explore this is to really look practically in two main ways. One is to look at the way that a sense of self appears in experience. And the second is to look for the ways that we seem to go beyond a sense of the separate self in certain kinds of experience. And in fact, I would say that most of our most beloved experiences go beyond the ordinary sense of self. What we call love, what we call deep connection with nature, what we often call creativity, we can find ways that that is beyond the everyday, ordinary sense of self, beyond what I, what I like to call the thick sense of self. So let me, um, that's what I'll talk about the rest of the time, and I want to have also have time for uh, discussion. So, first of all, what do we actually find when we look carefully at 
the way that a sense of self arises in experience. I think we find a few different aspects of self. We find sometimes a sense of self that is oriented towards a social role. We find ourselves identifying. And the Buddhist um, teaching really is going to be about the problems of grabbing hold or grasping on any sense of self. The problems of that. And I think it's going to be that if we don't do that, we can have a sense of self, a sense of individuality, but without the grasping, it's not so much of a problem. It's the grasping and the formation of a separate self that is really the target of the criticism. So we, <clears throat> we can look. Where does the self appear? Sometimes it appears when there's a, a kind of a social sense of self, when we identify with a particular role. I am a teacher, right? I am a teacher, I am a student, I am a man, I am a woman. You know, and if I identify too much with being a teacher, identify too much with my role, it will get in the way of things. I think we can see that easily. You know, if I, you know, I'm a teacher, I know everything. You know, I don't need to learn anything from you, right? It can lead to a sense of separation, uh, can lead to uh, not being, making it harder for me to learn, and so forth. And we can see how we have certain roles. I am a artist. I am a, um, I am a, um, a gardener. I am this. I am that. And on a certain level, there's a role there, but I think we know what it's like when that becomes what I call a thick sense of self, right? We know what a kind of identification with the role is. And we also know when the role is just matter of fact, it describes my individual being, but I don't grab hold of it, right? There's also uh, a sense of self that can arise because of our history, particularly our psychological history. You know, we can find that where I have certain wounds from the past, you know, there'll be a sense of self that arises, especially because there are wounds there. And I think I want to protect myself. So I create a sense of self to protect my pain or my wounds, right? And we encounter this in meditation, right? We can find that sometimes, that sense of self is there, you know? And sometimes... In fact, we have to do psychological work before that kind of shell can be uh, dissolved some. And so part of a sense of self, and you can look to your own experience, part of the sense of self appears where we feel, what, uh, where there's some wounds, some discomfort, something from the past has really impacted us, some vulnerability, and so forth. And there can be a strong sense of self there, a thick sense of self, right? Um, If I, for example, came from a family where my parents were divorced when I was 10 years old, I may have issues of abandonment. And they may really come into my life in terms of 
uh, a sense of self. I am the, and I don't say this myself necessarily, but I act as if I am the abandoned one. And I'm in a relationship, and my partner wants to go away for the weekend, and this very strong sense of self comes up, right? So there can be a sense of self there from the wounds, the difficulties, the developmental history of the past. And that can be also worked through. And it becomes a problem when it gets very thick, right? So what I'm going to suggest is that the sense of self, when it gets thick, is something we can study and work with. When it's thinner, there aren't the same issues there. And we can study that and work with it meditatively, psychologically, and in other ways. There are also aspects of self which are more cultural. You know, different cultures have very different models of self. I think any of us who are multicultural, exist in several cultures, have traveled, we know that, right? We have certain views of self. Uh, you know, it's very, very interesting for me to spend time in Asia and to find a very different sense of self. One, one story that's very interesting was um, spending time in Thailand. And I remember I, was, I went to meetings of an uh, organization called the International Network of Engaged Buddhists. And the uh, organizers were mostly Thai, but some of them had spent time in California. And they decided to implement California workshop-style techniques at this gathering of people who were mostly Thai, but also people from Cambodia and some from Nepal and from um, Laos and near in Japan and other uh, Asian, mostly Asian countries. And I remember one of the ways they did this was at the end of a week being together, they wanted everyone to say one thing which they liked and one thing which they didn't like publicly. Now, this was not ordinary procedure in Thailand, right? And you could, could tell that people at the beginning of it, you know, because this is part of what we think a self has. A self has views, likes and dislikes, and expresses them, right? This is sort of a, I don't know, Western view of what the self is. And you could tell the first people were extremely hesitant to say anything publicly. And they were saying like, well, I liked when we talked about the forest and I didn't like the vegetarian food. This actually proved to be the main theme which came out <laughs> in, the, in the discussion. Uh, but you could tell that the first few people were were, um, had some anxiety connected with actually expressing themselves. Because I think the sense of self there is very different. It's to be a self is not to have views and express them publicly. After four or five people, they relaxed. And then there was just a torrent of comments about the vegetarian food. <laughs> uh, so I just give that example that, there, that uh, you know, part of our sense of self is cultural. It's something like we don't always see it because it's, and, unless you live in several different cultures, you know, it's like the culture is the, the ocean that you live in as a fish, so to speak, right? And so you don't necessarily see it. So there's, there's, that, there's that sense of, of self. Um, there is also, maybe more subtly, there's a way, and this is something we can look at in deeper meditation, there's a way that there's a, sen- a very sense of self as separate 
from other things, other people, from our experience, from what we encounter, what we might call a subtle distinction between subject and object. So part of the encouragement here is really to look and just see how does the self appear in your experience. And particularly, look for when it appears in what I call a thick way. Look for how it appears. Again, the example I gave in the guided meditation is when it appears uh, in, let's say, uh, thinking that is repetitive. Most of our repetitive thinking is good evidence of a thick self. (laughs) So notice your top ten. This is partly the map of your thick self. Notice when there's a strong reaction. There's going to be something like a thick self there, liking, disliking. And again, not to say this is bad, just study it. And we get to know the way the self appears, especially looking at it as it is thick. Now, the other side of practice is to open more to where there is not so much a thick sense of self. And this is, I think, what the teaching is pointing to. And this is partly what we can explore through our practice. But it's also interesting that I think that we actually open up to a sense of not-self, I believe, all the time, but we just don't call it that in very ordinary experiences. And sometimes in ordinary experiences that are taken to a higher level. You know, one of the interesting things I think that we can see is that there's a lot of experiences where we don't have a strong sense of self. Think of just being with someone close to you where you feel completely comfortable and there's no self-consciousness and you're just being with that person. I think there are a lot of aspects of those experiences which don't have much of a thick sense of self. There, I think each of us has experiences where we don't have a thick sense of self, where we're not self-conscious, where there's a lot, high level of relaxation, we're really comfortable. could be in an activity that we love. It could be in our ordinary work, you know, where we're just doing it. There's not much sense of self and we're just engaged, right? We're just engaged like that. And there are also these beautiful experiences, which I think, again, for many of us are some of our more profound experiences, where we go beyond the ordinary self in a more dramatic way. You know, we can see this, I think, in when we get really immersed in an activity. And there's no sense of self. For me, one of the first experiences I had that I remember was when I was in college, and I was... Um, It was near the end of the semester and I had an essay to write. And I happened one evening to get so immersed in it that I stayed up almost all night. And hour after hour I was just immersed. And I remember walking into the dawn and feeling like something special had just happened. I was so immersed and it was a beautiful experience. right? Immersion, no sense of self, just totally, as it were, into the content. I think that's partly an experience of not-self. Right? Very, very interesting. I think we can find this in a number of different areas. You know, one of the areas I think that we can find it in is music. You know, think of something like jazz. Good jazz improvisation uh, doesn't have a sense of self. You know, my brother, actually a lot of my family are musicians, 
And my brother's a professional musician. If he's in a band and you just think, like the guitarist thinks, that was a good lick right there. The magic is gone at that moment, right? Or some of you, uh, well, let me see. I think I have, um, oh yeah, my mom is a musician. She was a, a pianist, is a pianist. And I was talking with her once. I was talking about concentration and concentration meditation. And she said, music is my concentration practice. And then she said, in giving a concert, if there's a sense of self or of how one's doing, it's not good, she said. You have to let yourself be taken over by the music. It's a kind of not-self experience. Also confined in sports, very interestingly. And I, I was collecting quotations from the... Um, San Francisco Giants on their run to the World Series championship. And if you actually, you, you can find teachings about not-self in the sports pages. And I have one quote. Um, this is, you know, and I think those of you, anyone follow that? The San, true confessions in a Buddhist meditation group. How many, any of you follow the San Francisco Giants? Okay, not very many, huh? Surprised. James does, right? James is totally into sports. I know that. I know that from. Okay, I won't tell. I won't embarrass him. Anyway, uh, this is um, this was one quotation from one of the players. Sometimes you have to get yourself out of the way in playing. Or there's a beautiful uh, book that actually a friend of mine, Oakland resident Andy Cooper, wrote called "Playing in the Zone." on the psychological and spiritual dimension of sports. And um, this, is, this is from Bill Russell, the great Celtics uh, center. Okay? Okay, if you're not interested in sports, just compare it to you know, something else. <laughs> okay. Every so often a Celtics game would heat up so that it became more than a physical or even mental game and it would be magical. That feeling is difficult to describe, and I certainly never talked about it when I was playing. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. At that special level, all sorts of odd things happened as almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During those spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought the ball in bounds, I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there, except I knew everything would change if I did. My premonitions would be consistently correct, and I always felt then that I not only knew all the Celtics by heart, but also all the opposing players, and that they all knew me. There have been many times in my career when I felt moved or joyful, but these were the moments when I had chills pulsing up and down my spine. Something that goes way beyond that ordinary sense of self. I think you can find this among artists as well, among... um, uh, people who go deeply into the natural world, right? That connection with the natural world is often understood as a way that the ordinary self, um, in, in a sense, is transcended. Right? So we can, we can see that. There's also the way to explore this sense of not-self very much in the context of meditation. And the teachings that we get are very much on how to work with uh, developing a sense of not-self in our practice. And there are a few different ways to do that. Probably the most basic way 
that is taught is a way of coming just to be with the flow of experience and to, what, and to go beyond the tendency to fixate on any part of experience or to overly conceptualize experience. And this is, I think, what we learn a lot in our practice, that we learn how, for example, to be with experience and just be with the sensations of breath and be with the flow of experience without um, trying to control it, without adding to it, without conceptualizing it. And I think all of us have had this experience, at least for short periods of time, right? How many can relate to that experience, at least for short periods of time? And as we practice more, we can open up to that being uh, those periods of practice being longer and longer. And when we actually, maybe in a retreat, stay primarily with that flow of experience without a self being there, something starts to shift. And we also see where the self appears and the reasons it appears. Does it want to try to control things, fixate on something out of self-interest? And so we can actually open up in that way. Just by simply being with the breath, being with the flow of experience is opening up to something beyond that thick self. You know, and we can work with that in a variety of ways. We can simply, you know, I think from a practical point of view, I recommend at first just doing it for a few minutes and really trying to stay with that flow just for a few minutes. And then it can open up and get, uh, and get, um, get longer. Um, we can also try to work with a sense of um, what, what we often call choiceless awareness, where the awareness, where we, you know, we're not trying necessarily to be aware of this or that. But we work with a kind of letting whatever is predominant be there. And so we, in a sense, have removed that element of choice that is part of the self. Part of the self is the function of choosing what to be aware of, what to do, and so forth. And so we can open up more to that kind of choiceless awareness. And as we go more deeply in our practice, we can also begin to open up at times to a kind of awareness that goes beyond even the very split of knower and known of subject and object. And we probably open up to this at times where we just have uh, a sense of this large awareness. You know. This is talked about in the Thai forest tradition, also in the Tibetan tradition, often, um, and I think in Zen as well, and often it's, it's like just being with awareness. Sometimes they use the technique of, of startling us, like going, and look for your awareness right after the clap, just for that split second, right? And tune into that, right? So it's very interesting, but there are ways that one can access that kind of very large awareness, which is, doesn't even have a knower in the known there, which is beyond the self in that way. So I think the way I have found useful to understand is that there can be a sequence in which we study the self and see the self more, and there can be a sequence in which we open to experience beyond the self increasingly. The initial practice, I think, would simply be to be with the flow of experience for a short period of time and let that get larger. At the same time that we study 
where the self appears in a thick way. And when we see that, and in a way, release it, you know, okay, there's a thick sense of self here. Let me just let it go. That can start to open us to that, to that uh, larger sense of flow. So let me end just with um, two quotations, I think, from, these are both from the uh, Buddhist tradition, about some of this further expanse of, of exploring self and not self. And let me, let me just say before I give the quotes that there's, when we look at issues of self and not self, and we look and spend some time with it, there's going to be some humor and some paradox. You know? And there, there can, it can be funny. I remember one teacher I had um, on a 10-day retreat or so, he said, I want you in this retreat to do nothing. Don't even try to meditate, but don't be distracted. Interesting instructions, right? And I, you know, I was, okay. I got, I am not going to do anything. <laughs> I'm going to do nothing. And then after about four days, I was really congratulating myself for doing nothing so well. You know, and I am doing nothing. So I was taking credit for doing nothing. You see, I mean, you get the, some of the humor, right? And uh, so there's humor, there's paradox. And also, there is a tremendous use for the self in a large part of our practice. A sense of self is what gets you to the meditation cushion every day, right? There often can be some sense of self that I want to do this. This is important. I will use my will to meditate. I will go to the retreat. I will study. I will follow the ethical guidelines. There is a constructive sense of self there. So it's going to... It's, the actual story of all this is a lot more complex than I've given if we want to really look at it in detail. But the core of it is simple, and I think it's as simple as what I've said, that we, on the one hand, look at the thick sense of self, see where it appears, study it. As we do that, it thins. And secondly, we open to experiences beyond that thick sense of self, um, both in meditation and in ordinary experience. And we open to that, we recognize them more, we tune in more, and those can continue to deepen. And again, I would say that some of our most profound experiences of love, of connection, of beauty, of um, insight, are all connected with the sense of going beyond that thick and limited self. So here, just to close... This is from a Tibetan teacher, uh, Dogo Kensei Rinpoche, who's one of the beloved teachers of the last generation, who I think died in 1991. He said, the idea of an enduring self is the very thing that now prevents you from liberating yourself and others. If you could simply let go of that one thought of I, you would find it easy to be free and to free others too. This I is just a thought, a feeling. A thought does not intrinsically possess any solidity, form, shape, or color. Once you realize that it has no inherent existence, your belief in it will easily disappear. And then, just to close, this is from the Buddha. This is really relating to that way of being with experience 
without the conceptualization of I. Just to be, some of you know the text where he says, when you're with a sound, just be with the sound. When you're with sensation, just be with the sensation. When you're with a smell, just be with the smell. The Buddha. This is how the training should be done. Concerning this body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and the liberation by wisdom. So if you have any reflections or questions, uh, I think we could use the microphone and, and um, have a conversation together. Um, please, um, mm, is, that, is that your role, Tim? Yeah, yeah. Good evening. Um, just a thought that came up when you were talking. Uh, so, The Legend of Bagger Vance, this movie, have you seen it? Excuse me? Have you seen the movie The Legend of Bagger Vance? Uh, no. So it's very beautiful because it, the, the, the not-self is presented very well in the, in the movie. And I was recently very pleased to find out that it was actually... Um, Telling the story of Krishna and Arjun. Oh. Uh, and I didn't know that, so I, I went and looked it up and yeah. and started to read the background. But then it all made sense as soon as I as soon as I heard that. But it's beautiful how he um is stewarded by this caddy. He's a golfer and and all the blocks to his um being natural uh arise out of a thick sense of self, unresolved past trauma, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the name of the film is? The Legend of Bagger Vance. The Legend of Bagger Vance. The Legend of Bagger yeah. Vance. And Bagger Vance, um, um, it, it, it's a sort of anglicized version of uh, uh, Bhagwan. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, if you, well, would you speak about equanimity and self and no self, if you feel So, like a question about the um, relation of equanimity yeah. in terms of self and not self. And it makes me, makes me think that, um, in a sense, all of the practices we do uh, are in the direction of these three core insights that are the, um, really the fruition of the practice, um, insight into impermanence, insight into the roots of suffering so that we don't act in ways that bring about suffering, and insight into the nature of the self, nature of not-self. And so all of the practices we do are going to help in that way. Our ethical practice, 
really is about, uh, you know, it's different levels, but it's especially about not being so self-centered, right? It's about uh, knowing that others have uh, their own subjectivity, their own uh, inherent freedom, and are incredibly worthy for that regard. In that regard, and some would want to bring that also to um, non-humans, to different kinds of animals, even plants, the earth, Gaia, and so forth. And so uh, all the practices really point in that direction and take us there in different ways. Mindfulness practice can be especially helpful in really studying the thick self, right? Really noticing it, using labels, really studying it over and over again. And practices, the ethical practice helps in a certain way. Practices like metta, loving kindness, is clearly about developing what in um, Western culture we would call unconditional love, right? And uh, a love that is beyond um, a self-other distinction, right? Metta would help us in that way. Compassion practice helps in that way. Joy and equanimity uh, practice uh, is is also really um, an expression of something that goes beyond self and, and goes beyond that thick sense of self. You know, the different ways of understanding equanimity, both as a uh, quality of our awareness and as a, as a practice, a, a heart practice, but most essentially as a, as a quality, as a factor of our consciousness, it's about non-reactivity. It's about not being reactive to whatever, as it were, comes down the pike. And it's taken to be a very advanced quality. You know, and it only comes from experience. You know? And so, it, it, you know, concretely it would mean you know, noticing, okay, studying my anger over and over and over again so that increasingly I don't identify with my anger studying my fear and anxiety over and over and over again so that when fear or anxiety comes, I notice, oh, like a a mountain climber has to do, right? I notice, oh, there's fear. And I don't, we would say, identify with it. I don't grasp, you know, I don't grasp on and say, oh my God, look at that precipice down there, right? You know, oh my God, maybe I should go back to Kmart, Forget about being a mountain climber, right? You know, and, and it's, um, but it only comes from experience. That equanimity uh, comes from having hung out with these states where typically a thick sense of self arises enough so that the, that the experiences can be there, you know, particularly the difficult ones, fear, anger, confusion, whatever. And we can be with that without it becoming a construction of a thick self. You know, so it's, it's an advanced quality, but our, every moment of our practice is essentially developing equanimity. Every moment where something challenging happens and I'm not 100% caught, even if I'm 60% caught, it's developing equanimity. Right? So it's, a very, um, it's, it's actually quite close. I mean, the, the equanimous mind doesn't have much of a thick self. Right. So interesting, interesting. Thank you. Thank you for the question.
This teaching of self and not self, or, or maybe related teachings as well, but particularly self and not self, be part of a way to understand fairly intense public events, you know. And I I do think it's quite important to do that, you know. And I didn't bring it in so much tonight, but one of my own interests over the years has really been to see our practice as more seamless, to see that our practice and our insights can be brought into our personal lives, our interpersonal lives, and also the larger social lives. One of, one of the, uh, one of the uh, capacities that helps with that in that way is to see the world as it, way, were, as, as it were with eyes of practice. How do you look out into the world and have your practice understanding helping with your vision? We don't always cultivate that so much, right? It's, it's not so easy. We, we do it pretty well with our individual selves, right? And maybe a, somewhat well, maybe with our relationships, but harder when we look to more complex um, social forms. So uh, if I would be, uh, if I would look at it um, from the perspective of self and not self, and here's where I would go. I mean, and again, there's a lot that we don't know about the situation, right? We've heard very little about the motivation of the bombers, you know. Um, I would tend to see this in a larger context in which there are certain kinds of selves who are in conflict with each other. (laughs) Certain kinds of selves. You know, I I tend to see this uh, in terms of um, kind of uh, evolutionary imperatives. As I mentioned, I think that that we're being called. And those of you who were there at Spirit Rock on Saturday when we looked at the application of Dharma to climate issues, you know, which I know that uh, uh, James gave talks on that last summer uh, based on Bob Doppelt's book, right, From Me to We. I think I would actually say, I I think, uh, and Bob was there on Saturday, I would actually say, uh, it's actually not from me to we. It's, It's from a limited sense of me to a more expanded sense of me, which is more connected with we. That doesn't rhyme as well. As, as Bob's from me to we. How many of you were at those talks? At least some of them, yeah. They're on the web, so it's very, very interesting talks. And, and so I tend to think that our times are calling for uh, a much more interdependent sense of self that's more rooted in compassion, less identified with uh, a separate self, less identified with a nation, and more of a world citizen that can feel interconnection and compassion. And I think you know, my sense is that that shift to a, that sense of self is necessary uh, 
to actually address our deeper problems, you know, including climate change, but also including, um, including uh, issues of terrorism, you know, and so forth. And I think that, you know, we, so we have uh, nationalism is a kind of sense of self, right? Uh, my colleague, David Loy, we teach together quite often. We'll teach uh, a retreat on socially engaged Buddhism next year. He uses the term we go as a, as a parallel to ego. You know, uh, it says there's a we go, and nationalism is a kind of we go. You know, it's a kind of fixated collective sense of self that is, you know, has certain value at a certain point, and then becomes more limited. And so, I think that there, you know, in the larger context here, there, there. You know, we could look at our nation as having this collective sense of self built on a lot of individual senses of self, which tend to be more self-absorbed and self-interested, right? Not, not actually very engaged. And, um, and that uh, collective sense of self defines, uh, is very identified with what is thought to be good for the nation, you know, and whether that's actually uh, for the betterment of all the people in the nation is an open question, right? And so there, there comes to be a strong sense of self, and that leads to certain actions. And there, it can cause a certain blindness, such as, I mean, I think that... Uh, uh, naturally enough, there's a lot of shock when one is attacked, but there's very there's not necessarily wisdom or compassion. You know that we um, we can have beautiful compassion for the people who were hurt in Boston, but we don't make the connections between the hurt that may have caused the uh, the bombings. You know the phrase is "hurt people hurt people," and there are cycles. And this is very much in Buddhist teachings. It said violence only ends by love. Violence doesn't end by violence. And we could see certain kinds of self are there among the U.S. citizens and almost the we-go of the nation. And certain senses of self are there for the bombers. You know, a sense of, you know, that's connected more with, apparently, with a certain vision of Islam, right? And I think that uh, together... There's, it's, there's a way that there's, we're caught in a web of um, narrow sense of self that um, is connected with quite a bit of suffering and the willingness to inflict suffering and an unwillingness to look at, look at oneself or to question the thick self. So, that's, so I would tend to see it that way. I would tend to see... Um, of course, we want, you know, the practice would point towards a more universal compassion. You know, not just the compassion, as it were, for our side. And would point to really, uh, you know, trying to see things clearly. And I'm, I'm afraid that in this country, when these things happen, there's a tab- taboo against um, rational discourse and understanding. There's a taboo against asking, might some of our actions be connected with what happened? 
I'm afraid that there's a taboo against asking those kind of questions. Does that make some sense? Yeah. And that results in acting out perpetually. And that's true, on, as it were, on both sides. You know? And so that's the, not such a short answer, but um, it's, it's, a little, it's a bit sobering. But I think that, uh, again, the beautiful compassion came out of the, the bombings, right? Beautiful compassion and the first responders and pretty amazing, right? Pretty heart-touching. And they weren't asking these kind of questions. They were just responding to suffering, right? And that's beautiful, you know? When it starts to then get into the larger picture with the politicians, that's where you see the self-arising. And it's not so pretty. Let's end with a practice question. <laughs> and then we'll, then we'll close. So that's a, it's a very difficult area, isn't it? Is that, you know... Yeah. Hi again, Donald. Just a quick um, question about the terminology. Yeah. So when when you say anatta, is it the experience of intrinsic nature beyond the thick self, or is it actually a label for the thick self itself? Anatta means not self. The question is, what does anatta refer to? Is it referring to what I was calling the thick self? And by the way, thick self is my own language. The Buddha didn't say, look at the thick self. (laughs) You know. um, but the uh, uh, anatta is a term that literally means not self, and it is uh, pointing to um, the possibility of experience without a thick sense of self. And what I've tried to suggest is that there's almost like a developmental sequence where we can start experiencing that sense of not self in small ways, like just when we're with the breath without adding any sense of self or conceptualization for three minutes. That's not self, right? There can be, that's a sense of not self. And there's a developmental sequence where we do that more and more. It starts to come into more and more of our experience. And we start bringing it into these other parts of our life. And we can start deepening that sense of not self through other kinds of practices as well, which goes all the way towards the experience of Nibbana or the sense of a uh, kind of being beyond any sense of self and other, which is where this all points. And as I mentioned, we can experience, it's actually not so hard to experience that for a moment or two or three. And we all do. We have these beautiful experiences, love, immersion in nature, meditation. What's harder is to have that be around most of the time in our lives not so hard to experience a profound sense of not-self. It's very hard to have it be there most of the day. So I hope that's encouraging. Because <laughs> it means, what it means for me is that the deeper, the deeper aim of our practice, even what we call awakening or enlightenment, is actually pretty accessible. But it's accessible for um, short moments. So what our practice is about is knowing that those are occurring and then expanding those moments until they're more of where we live from than the thick self. That's the direction. Okay. So let's just end with, uh, I think we end with metta. Just end with a short 
uh, time with metta. Coming back to our own being and touching our hearts. And feeling that sense of metta or basic friendliness for ourselves and for others. And let that expand. Let it start to fill up this room, offering a basic kindness, wishing well for all of us in this room. May we be well. May we blossom in wisdom and compassion. Feeling how in that moment of metta, just that simple wishing well, there's no sense of self or other. There's just the wishing well. Let that sense of kindness expand filling up this room and going beyond this meditation hall into the city of Berkeley. Expanding in all directions from the heart in front and back, left and right, above and below. Filling the Bay Area, radiating out from our hearts, letting your imagination Help guide this radiating heart, moving out in all directions and filling up the entire earth in all directions, front and back, left and right, above and below. And finally going out in all directions without limit in space radiating out from your heart, this core kindness. Wishing well for every being that you encounter. And finally coming back to being with your heart here in this room, being with your body, your kind heart. Listening for the bell that will provide a transition from our session here and the rest of your life. So thank you, and thank you very much for your kind attention. And I didn't mention it before, but James asked me to be here next week. So 
How many of you would like to explore this topic again next time? Look at the further reaches of not-self. Anyone interested? How many have had enough of not-self? And so, okay. <laughs> okay. So my invitation is, do the two practices that we did in the next week. The practice of first looking for the thick self when it appears in your meditation and in your daily life, number one. And then tuning in to experiences in which there isn't a sense of thick self, both in meditation and in ordinary life. Take some notes and come back with your report. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.